Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we do come to you this morning expounding upon 1 Corinthians 13. Lord, I pray that I would faithfully handle this text and that you would speak to your people through your word. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message is The Love of Christ by and to His Bride. So the message is taken from 1 Corinthians 13. And as I read the scripture text, let me remind you that this is the word of God and not the word of man. So please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. <clears throat> but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. <clears throat> when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I sh- shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, Love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So now that you just heard Paul's instruction to the believers in Corinth, uh, let's back up a few minutes and see just who these people were to who this letter was addressed. Uh, The Corinthians were Gentile believers. They were not instructed in the law of God as were the Jews. Um, And we see in chapter 1 that they were a schismatic people. So starting in verse 10 of chapter 1, we read, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So that we see in the very first chapter uh, the need for Paul to address divisions in the congregation. Uh, Who else made up this congregation in Corinthians, or in the church at Corinth? In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, we read, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Such were some of you. So this congregation had quite the laundry list of sins. Uh, No less than four of these named sins are sexual in nature. And yet the Lord says, um, and some were some of you. It was quite the perverse crowd. But it's not unlike ourselves at all. So according to the standard of our Lord, how many of us could claim that we are totally pure from all of the sins listed here? As Bible-believing Christians, we point our finger uh, at the homosexual, and we rightly point out, according to the Scripture and several others like it, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we may or may not be guilty of that same sin, but consider the other sins that are listed in this text and that, that were found at the church of Corinth. Idolatry, for instance. Idolatry on its own um, is sure to ensnare each of us in this materialistic society that we live in. And when we place anything above the, Lord, the love for the Lord in our lives, then that is idolatry. And so then how thankful that verse 11 doesn't simply end by stating these sins that describe uh, the Corinthians. Rather, it does go on to say, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. So praise the Lord that he has not left us in our wretched condition. He has justified us and sanctified us so that we could truly be called saints. As Paul addresses the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now the saints at Corinth, as well as the saints here in Oklahoma City, validate Martin Luther's declaration that we are simul justus epicator, which is just a Latin way of saying simultaneously justified and sinner. So the letter, though the letter was addressed to the church at Corinth, we know that ultimately the Lord meant this uh, to be addressed to his church at large. So verse 2 could have just as easily have been written as to Northwest Bible Church, which is at Oklahoma City, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with who... Sorry, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. But in any case, this letter was written to the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many like to use 1 Corinthians 13 as a a wedding passage to be delivered during a wedding ceremony. In fact, my wife and I actually used it in our wedding. And it could certainly benefit a marriage when a husband and wife uh, consider treating one another in the love shown in this text. But as we read this together, let's realize that the true context and the purpose of this text uh, was not in the marriage relationship, but rather it was given to a particular church and to minister to the way that the believers interact with one another here in this church um, at this particular time and location and given to the Lord's people at large in all times and places for the purposes of teaching us how that we should live and relate to one another in the church. So now that we've established that God is speaking directly to us in this letter, let's dive into what he has to say in chapter 13. In verses 1 through 3, we're given five different gifts as examples that someone could use, uh, that someone that may be considered holy might have. So these gifts are tongues, prophecy, faith, great generosity, and martyrdom. So in talking about tongues, first of all, Contrary to what I used to believe when I was in the charismatic movement, uh, the gift of tongues is clearly shown in the scriptures to be the ability to speak in another language that you've never learned 
in order to share the gospel with others who do speak that language. This would be if our brother Juan here who speaks Spanish, if I could stand up to a congregation that he was leading, and I as one who have never spoken or learned Spanish before, and I was able to address them fluently and tell them of the grace of God in the Spanish language, having never learned that myself. So let's read in Acts 2, 4 through 8 for proof of that. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Now, you must admit that this would be a very useful gift. Not only could you speak another language without the years of study necessary uh, that would normally be required to do so, but the message that you speak would be given to you directly by the Holy Spirit. And this is, in fact, what the early Pentecostals and Charismatics used to believe. Uh, after supposedly receiving the gift of tongues, they sent these, these tongue speakers out as missionaries to countries where they had never learned the language. Uh, and it was quite a shock to them when the natives had no idea what they were saying. It was only after this point that the Pentecostals and Charismatic kind of changed their tune and called this a heavenly language in order to justify speaking gibberish that means nothing to anyone. Well, the next gift that Paul addresses is the gift of prophecy. This was a supernatural gift of being the mouthpiece of God. Old Testament examples of prophets abound. But even in the New Testament, we see prophecy mentioned. For instance, in Ephesians 4.11, we read, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. A prophet carried a weighty responsibility. It was a very serious matter to claim to speak for God himself. And TJ talked on this this morning in his Sunday school lesson. Under the old covenant, false prophets were to be killed. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22 tells us, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about, or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Deuteronomy 18, 20-22. And then the New Testament gives many warnings about false prophets. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But, and then again in Second Peter 2, 1, which... It's funny, TJ and I did not coordinate our, our messages this morning when we talked, but I believe that maybe the Lord has orchestrated this for your benefit because there's someone that needs to hear it. Uh, but anyway, Second Peter 2.1 says, But false prophets also arose from among, among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And so... When you think of these things, think of the many false prophets that come to your mind that are rampant in the church today. And yet the supernatural gift mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 13 is in regard to actual true prophets, those who would speak the word of God and be at the mouthpiece of God. Now, we don't have a need for tongues or for prophecy today, 
because we do have the completed canon of Scripture. There are many solid theologians who would come down to verse 10 as proof that tongues and prophecies have been done away with, as now we have the perfect which has come, which is the Word of God. Um, I could be convicted of the, of the, or convinced of the truth of that interpretation. Though I'm not positive that that's what it's talking about, I can definitely see their points and, and understand where they're coming from there. But the most obvious proof of the cessation of these gifts is the absence of any legitimate display of them in modern times. Add to that that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, according to Ephesians 2.20. And foundations are laid once. Then the structure is built upon it. Uh, Consider the text of Ephesians 2.20. Starting in verse 19, we read, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now add to that that we also have biblical qualifications specified in the Word of God for the offices of elders and deacons. No such qualifications are given for prophets. If the Lord had intended uh, for that office to continue, then surely he would have given us the instructions on how, on the expectation of what we should expect of prophets. And as a side note, um, one of the qualifications for apostles is that they must be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. And so no one alive today uh, qualifies as an apostle. The next supernatural gift that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13.2 is the gift of faith. It says, so as to remove mountains. Now that would be more faith than the twelve apostles of Christ had themselves, as our Lord often admonished them, O ye of little faith. And the incident that Paul is referring to here in verse 2 is found in Matthew 21, 19-21. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, He came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. So then, that the example that the Lord gives here is someone who had greater faith than all of his own apostles did. Now, the last two ifs that we see in this passage are, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned. Now, both of these examples represent extreme sacrifice. If I were to give all my possessions to feed the poor, then I would likely be poor myself, and could not even feed myself or my family. And so that I or whoever would do that would die of starvation, having given their life for those that they were helping. And likewise, if I give my body to be burned, as many martyrs throughout the history of the church have done, that would be considered the ultimate sacrifice. Now the point in all these things, whether or not it would be possible today uh, to do these things, the point of the passage is, is that without love, it's all worthless. So consider that for a moment. Those who could perform these amazing feats would be considered giants and stalwarts in the faith. And yet the scripture tells us that in all these things, they're worthless without love. 
And then keep in mind that all of this is presented here in the context of the local church. The church is the bride of Christ. So when we're unloving one toward another, we're unloving toward Christ's bride. Richard Baxter wrote in the Reformed Pastor the following passage that that really made an impression upon me. He writes, Oh, saith one of the ancient doctors, if Christ had but committed to my keeping one spoonful of his blood in a fragile glass, how curious should I preserve it, and how tender should I be of that glass? If then I have, we have, he have committed to me the purchase of his blood, should I not as carefully look to my charge? What, sirs, shall we despise the blood of Christ? Shall we think it was shed for them that are not worthy of our utmost care? Now, what Baxter's saying here in somewhat archaic language is that if we were entrusted with a vial of the actual blood of Christ drawn from his veins, we would go to great lengths to protect it. We would keep it at the right temperature so as not to let it decay. Uh, In no case would we allow it to be dropped or spilled on the floor. So that if we had that concern for the actual blood of Christ itself, then how much more concern should we have for his church? for whom Christ willingly purchased with this very blood. Now, Baxter was writing to pastors as to the care that they should take toward the, um, toward the members of the church for which he was um, ministering. Um, but we could all use the reminder that all of our brothers and sisters were purchased with the very blood of Christ. So that when we consider the love that we show one toward another, consider it that these people... These brothers and sisters around you were purchased with the very blood of Christ. And not only that, but these brothers and sisters who are true believers in Christ make up the bride of Christ. We've sung about that this morning. As a husband, I could endure slander or insult if it was directed at me. But if someone attacks my bride, my response will be quick and unrelenting. I love her and I will defend her to the death if necessary. And so also does Christ love his bride, the church. And we should likewise love and cherish her. So starting in verse 4, the Holy Spirit through Paul gives us attributes of love. And these are ways that we can show love toward one another in the church. Each of these attributes are also attributes of Christ. We read in verse 4, love is patient. How can we be patient with our brothers and sisters? 1 Peter 4, 8-9 through gives us a good pattern. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. We all need to exercise patience with one another. Plus, if we have a legitimate complaint with one another, I encourage you to practice Matthew 18, 15-17. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But even if this pattern is used, ask yourself first whether your brother has truly sinned against you or whether it's just an inconvenience. If it's just an inconvenience, then for the sake of love toward your brother, then I would encourage you just to overlook it. Or better yet, pray silently for your brother or sister. It's difficult to imagine 
or to be impatient with those to whom you were actively praying. Now, our congregation is made up of all ages with a good mix of different nationalities, and yet we are one family, brothers and sisters united in love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Love is kind. I've seen much kindness in this church. So members are quick to bring meals to those who've recently had babies. I've seen the church work together to help widows and widowers who've recently or not so recently lost their spouses. I've seen the servant attitude uh, that many embrace while setting up tables and chairs for our first Sunday dinner. I've also seen the faithful saints give of their time on Wednesday nights to come to the church and pray earnestly for those in our congregation, as well as their extended family and friends. There's an admonishment in, in the text here to kindness. And this can be as simple as greeting those around you after the service or introducing to yourself uh, those who you may not know. And in this way, visitors um, may feel welcome among us. Last Wednesday, uh, Eric Bergman mentioned uh, the huge impact that a simple act of kindness can have upon an unbeliever with whom we happen to come in contact with in our daily lives. In Romans 2.4, we read, Or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness, kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? When you're kind to those whom God brings across your path, you may very well be used as the instrument that God uses to lead them to repentance. Love is not jealous. We rejoice with one another when the Lord blesses our brothers and sisters. We don't envy their possessions. These are things that we teach our own children, and yet there was a need for Paul to bring this to the attention of the Corinthian church. As a parent, one of my pet peeves that I never want to hear from my kids is, is their claim that that's not fair. I have two responses to that when they say that that's not fair. First, to tell them that fair is a socialistic concept. Then I get to explain what I mean by that. We don't all receive the exact same things in life, and that's okay. And then next, I remind them that what they, they really don't want fair. Uh, fair means that we would all burn in hell for all eternity, because that's what we all truly deserve. Christianity is not fair according to our own human judgment. God chooses whom he will to save, uh, leaving others to receive, receive the, the due penalty of their, of their reward. And when it comes to those of the church, we should embrace what we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And if anyone, if any one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. A pride is a major problem in our culture. Pride is routinely held up as a virtue in our society. We're proud of our children. We're proud of our country. We're proud of our own accomplishments. We're a very proud people. But what does the scripture say about pride? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 16, 18. And our Lord told us in Mark 7, 21 through 22. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Then First 1 John 2.16, we read, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Humility is rarely appreciated or taught in our culture, and yet it should be taught in the church. 
Uh, Philippians 2.3 tells us, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So God is honored when we kill our pride and choose instead the humble way of interacting with one another. Verse 5 reads, Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. This seems to be almost a restatement of what we just read. Our Lord Jesus put it this way in Matthew seven twelve. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. The one who exampled this perfectly is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is so true that when reading 1 Corinthians 13, you could substitute the name of Jesus, whatever you see the word love in the text, and it would read perfectly true and, and right. Because Jesus is patient. He is kind. Now, Christ goes on in Matthew 5, 48 to tell us, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so then we see that we're given a mandate to be like Christ so that if we could see Christ in every verse of this 1 Corinthians 13, then ideally we should be able to see ourselves there. Um, but that's not always going to happen. We are sinful beings. We, uh, we sin constantly, and that's, that's something that we'll never be free from until we are with the Lord face to face. But love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Stop and consider that for a moment. Christians are labeled unloving because we tell those holding to a different religion uh, than, than we do that unless they repent and stop worshiping their false god and turn to Christ, they will perish in hell. But this is the furthest thing from being unloving. It would be unloving if it weren't true. Uh, for instance, it would be unloving to, to go to your brother's house at 3 in the morning and wake them up just for the fun of it. But if we run over to your brother's house at three in the morning and their house is on fire and you rush into that burning house, shake them from their slumber, wake them up and bring them out of the house, then you've just saved their life. You've been, you've been very loving towards that brother because they would die otherwise. But the same is true when we call sinners to repentance. The most unloving thing that we could do with other sinners around us in our life is to withhold the truth of the gospel uh, from those. They are perishing. And as believers, likewise, we should rejoice in the truth. For we all believe the same truth, those who are genuine believers. Let's not mirror the world and take offense when presented with scriptural truths. But rather, if, when one of our, our brothers or sisters approaches us with an issue, let's hold it up to the light of scripture and rejoice in what the scripture declares. The rest of this chapter talks about the permanence of love and the fleeting nature of prophecy and tongues, which we've already discussed but I'm going to go ahead and read that out. Because verse 8 says that love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are gifts of tongues, or if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, shall, then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. 
but now abide, abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So if I were to end the sermon right there and talk about the permanence of love and the fleeting nature of prophecy um, and how we all need to do better because we're failing in this avenue, then uh, that would be a heavy weight upon our shoulders. After all, how in the world could we ever expect to live up to the scripture I quoted earlier in Matthew 5.48? Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's, that's a weight on our shoulders that no, not one of us could bear. But how thankful I am that our justification does not hinge on how well we keep the commandments of Christ. So when given this impossible task, we should pray like Augustine prayed, Lord, command what thou will and grant what thou commandest. Basically, tell us what to do. Give us your, your word, your law, and then enable us by your Holy Spirit to keep that law. And that's what we do. We, this is a Christian walk of sanctification. It is a slow and steady march toward the day that we will meet Christ face to face, just as verse 12 declares, I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. For in that day, we will be perfect. We will have, the Lord will have completed his work in us. <clears throat> but until that day, we're not complete yet. We're working out our salvation day by day. And that doesn't mean our justification. No, we are fully justified in God's sight and he will cause us to persevere until the end. But we work out that sanctification day after day as we walk out this life. And that includes showing love towards our brothers and sisters here in the church. Do you need to love more? Then I implore you to go to Christ. Pray for his help and his strength to love one another. Are there relationships in your life that you wish were better? Well, pray that Christ would grant you the ability to love those individuals the way that he loves them. Pray for those people. If there's someone who irritates you, even in the congregation, pray for that family, pray for those individuals, lift them up before the Lord, and the Lord will bind us together, for we are one in Christ, one with another. If they are believers, the subjects of your prayers, then they are part of the blood of Christ. You will be worshiping Jesus Christ with them for all of eternity, free from sin. And how long for that day? I get so tired of the sin in my flesh and I, I long for the day when we can be face to face with Christ and be totally free from sin. Are you outside of the family of God? Then Christ is the only answer. Now, this message brings the full weight of the law to bear upon our sinful human flesh. Um, but, but before you are ever able to walk out your love one for another, you must confess your sin, turn to Christ and express your love to him. I would encourage you to do that today. If you don't know him, it's pointless to even talk about loving one another. If we, if we don't love Christ, if we don't have that as our foundation where we stand, then we have no basis to be able to love one another. So keeping that in mind, uh, let's pray and, uh, and close this morning. Father, we do thank you for your love for the church. But we do pray that you would grant us each one by the strength of your Holy Spirit, to love one another, to pray for one another, and to lift one another up, encourage one another. Lord, I pray that we would study out 1 Corinthians 13 as an example of how we are to love one another. For Lord, there's much law in this passage, but the law is 
counterbalanced even with the knowledge that you have enabled us to keep these things according to your word. Lord, this, and this section of scripture tells us how we are to live within the church. And we do pray and thank you, Lord, for, for your word that gives us these clear instructions. Pray that you'd go with us this week and enable us by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit uh, to live with love one toward another and to those that you bring into our lives. Help us to share the gospel unashamedly with those who are perishing and who are on their way to hell. And Lord, we know that you've elected all into salvation, but pray, Lord, that, that we would be used to be your vessels to, to lead those into the kingdom, to be your mouthpiece um, when, we, when we share the word of God with them. We thank you, Lord, for, for this day and for all of your blessings. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.